0: Hello, David Pleetis here, Silk and Slopes Conversations. And yes, there is something on my head. This is the visar from Novarad, out of Provo. And with me today is Dr. Wendell Gibby, one of the co-inventors of this technology that is actually going to change the world of surgery. Dr. Gibby, thank you for being here with us today. It's an honor. Well, you're kind to say that, but before we jump into this thing here, that I truly believe has the potential to transform the world of surgery, who is Dr. Wendell Gibby? Where did you come from? Where were you born? Where were you raised? Tell me. Tell us
1: about yourself. Who are you? That gets a little teleological here. I think. Okay. I'm um, a Utah native. Actually born in Idaho, but moved to Utah as a young boy. Uh, Grew up in Orem, went to BYU, studied chemical engineering, uh, decided to go to medical school. So I finished in chemistry instead of chemical engineering. Went to the University of Utah, um, did a diagnostic radiology residency, Uh, University of Arizona did an internship at UCLA and a fellowship in neuroradiology at University of Pennsylvania. Okay, And then I was given an opportunity to come back to my hometown to start the MRI program at Utah Valley Hospital.
0: Really? Down there in Provo?
1: Down in Provo.
0: Wow, that brings back a lot of memories. I'm a BYU graduate myself and maybe once or twice I ended up (laughs) over at Utah Valley Regional Medical Center as it's called today. So, for our audience out there, what is radiology in simple language and what is an interventional radiologist? What does that mean?
1: Well, radiology is using imaging, various forms. X-rays were some of the earliest. And then ultrasound, they use sound waves to bounce through the body. Mm-hmm. MRI became a very important tool um, Uh, Beginning about 30 years ago. Magnetic
0: resonance imaging, correct? Yeah. Yes. Okay.
1: And as we created tools that could image inside the body, we figured out how to guide things into the body using the imaging. So interventional radiology is really image-guided surgery. It's coming through a needle or a catheter uh, as opposed to cutting someone open.
0: Yeah, in in my career, one of the companies that I worked with was a company um, that called Rubicon Medical, and I don't know if you know of Rubicon Medical or not. Doctor Rich, not Doctor Richlinder, but Richlander was the CEO and the founder of the company, and they use a mesh to actually capture emboli or blockages in the blood system to remove them from the heart. And part of it was delivery via catheter that you could see direct exactly where the catheter was in the veins as it was pushed to that place where the blockage occurred in the heart and interventional cardiology uses interventional radiology it just has to right that's part of it so you were at the hospital down in Provo but eventually you started your own company you have clinics and stuff talk about the creation of Novarad what was the the thing that happened or that you saw happening or not happening in the medical field that led you to start Novarad
1: you know i started doing things a long time before that okay uh in junior high really we were building um Digital modulation systems for lights this was like the seventies okay and so this is disco uh this is pre disco this pre disco okay. this is rock, okay, and we were my nerdy friends and I were building boxes that would uh, that would modulate the frequency of the different sounds and have different lights strobe Very depending cool. on the sound and uh so when I uh when I was in internship, uh I started synthesizing magnetopharmaceuticals. That was my background, was chemistry. Okay. And by the time I hit residency I had a laboratory at University of Arizona in the in an old veterans hospital basement. Uh-huh. And I started creating polymeric chelates for MRI imaging. Right. Uh, I continued that work when I went to University of Pennsylvania. I acquired a laboratory and started synthesizing contrast media, the stuff that they inject into your veins to to visualize things. Improve the imagery, right? Right. So I had already started. I already had a company formed. Okay. I I had filed and received patents. All right. And I had annoyed my poor, long-suffering wife (laughs) by spending money on— Companies and patents and crazy stuff. ideas crazy right? ideas right exactly uh, in fact, I would moonlight as a as a radiologist or even working urgent care as a you know pseudo emergency doctor okay um to earn money to to pay for this these bad habits of <laughs> entrepreneurial activity right right. Um, It so happened that when I was at University of Pennsylvania, there was a very bright uh, young doctor a year behind me who taught me the physics of MRI. He was an MD-PhD, Mitch Schnall. He's now chairman of radiology at University of Pennsylvania. And he was building prostate balloons. These were intrarectal balloons that you would put a coil on and image directly the prostate gland very interesting to do that required latex balloons and the hospital did not want latex in the body in their hospital because of people with latex allergies oh yes so yes, yes. to build these he would come to my laboratory across the street in the chemistry department and he befriended me i befriended him and i learned a little bit how to build surface coils for MRI okay when I came back to Provo we had a new MRI machine but the images weren't great because we didn't have good coils in those days and being too stupid to know any better I said hey well we can just build some of these I've built these before at University of Pennsylvania so I started building homemade surface coils, which was common in those days. Uh, you you built your own. There was a problem. You were fixing the problem. So um, a friend who had, uh, one of my nerdy friends, Sandy Larson, that I grew up with, he was an engineer, and he said, well, you know, I know how to do RF, and we started building surface coils. So now this little company was building magnetopharmaceuticals. We had patents for contrast agents. We took seven surface coils through the FDA. And one day I was at the hospital, and a young man showed up. He was sent by Bill Barrett, who was a computer science guy at BYU. All right. Who knew that, you know, I did lots of different things and... uh, Wai Ho Poon was from Hong Kong but he knew that the Chinese would take it over and he didn't want to go back to Hong Kong so he asked if there was anything that he could do that a job that I would have for him in computer imaging uh, that he could get a green card now I didn't know anything about computer science Certainly didn't know anything about programmers, and I said, "Well, Waiho, if you can program my Macintosh to get images at my home, so I don't have to drive in at night, I'll write a job description that only you will qualify for." Okay, I didn't realize Waiho knew nothing about programming. Waiho had was a PhD chip designer who had reverse engineered the Z eighty chip in China. Oh wow. That goes back, doesn't
0: it? It does, back to Xylog days, yeah.
1: Yeah. So Waiho pulled out the these phone book size programming manuals for Apple, taught himself to program, and created a uh, It was a small program that would do teleradiography so I could receive images and not have to drive in on a snowy night from
0: Mapleton. On a 18,000 BPS modem or 14K? 14K. Okay, yeah.
1: And the problem was just that. Yeah. Bit rate was too low. We were ahead of our time. Bit rate was too low. And it was honestly quicker to drive to the hospital. Yeah than to deal with this.
0: But you had this telemedicine solution that was
1: early, early, early. This is pre-DICOM. This was running. We had a DOS computer yeah. that Waiho had built. We called it Waiho Windows because it had kind of a Windows interface to it. Okay. And we started building out this software business. Well, at some point, you have to make a decision. And we would take the software to these trade shows, like in Chicago at the RSA. And it turned out it was easier to sell the software than the coils because General Electric and Siemens, who manufactured the the MRI machines, would simply tell their customers, "That's fine, buy that three thousand dollar coil, and we'll void the warranty right. on your." million MRI scanner. Yeah. so
0: The software was not competition to them. The
1: software, it turns out, for convenience, it was a need. Doctors didn't want to have to drive into the hospital, and the digital imaging was just beginning. Mm -hmm. About that time, there was a young man that came over to the hospital, was looking for... Uh, some type of internship or you know just research experience. He went to one of the doctors in uh, pathology who had worked with Homer Warner and his program at uh, at LDS Hospital. <laughs> but this doctor was no longer really doing any serious computer science work. He had he had, had a degree in computer science, but um, but he sent them over to me. He said, "Well, Gibby's always doing something crazy." Go see what he'll do. And this young man, Stephen Savetko, was an undergraduate, just married at BYU, and a pre med student. He um, came and volunteered. He says, I will work for free. Turns out he was a brilliant, brilliant guy yeah. and very hardworking. And he wrote the first. DICOM server in the world. Hmm. We called it the server. Okay. That was when DICOM was just getting off the ground. And this was running, again, on DOS. Mm-hmm. Um, he then went on to medical school at the University of Chicago yeah. in an MD-PhD program, yeah. prestigious place, Illinois uh is, Urbana was where he was working. Yeah, and hated it.
0: That's what he told me on Saturday. Actually, it was fascinating.
1: He decided that it was boring, that it was just memorization, and he couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So he called me, and he said, "Doctor Gibby, he said, I don't know what to do. This is, I, this is so boring. I can't, I can't do this." I said, "Stick with it, Steve. You know, with a, with a." Doctor degree in medicine you can do a lot of things and he's like "Now I'm done so he did his PhD yeah in the meantime I um, I had him work part time remotely yeah on new technologies he wrote the first Java viewer back when Java was a
0: it was hot, hot it was hot technology. for a while there yeah,
1: yeah sorry I gotta scratch my nose you you're fine out. anyway um, when he graduated from uh, his, with his PhD, which always takes longer than you expect, you know these programs, you write dissertations and so sure. forth. Um, he was recruited by Google to work in uh, the Sil- Silicon Valley, but when he went out and interviewed there. The cost of housing was so high that with his three children, he said, I can't afford to live here. Yeah. So I said, Steve, I'll hire you in heartbeat." Didn't have a job available for him in mm-hmm. overhead. So I hired him as the IT manager at my Blue Rock Medical Clinic. So
0: push pause there for just a second. Where yes. along the way have we even gotten to that point then? Is Novarad actually formed as a company? Is it pre no. or is it come along <clears throat> later?
1: We'll have to go back, but I want to finish the story with Steve. Okay, that's fine. So there's some linearity here. Uh, fair enough. So Steve worked as my IT guy. Yeah. At this clinic and programmed on the side. Okay. Of course. Yeah. And then, um, Nova Ad, uh was evolving, and I decided to initiate a second group that would report directly to me, a research division. Mm-hmm. The companies tend to get sclerotic with time. They get bogged down with process. Sure. And uh, in order to initiate new technologies, it, it's difficult. Right. So Steve headed up our R&D division. Got it. Uh, and eventually became our chief technology officer at Yeah. Yeah. While he was working on that, I said, we need 3D. We need to be able to do 3D imaging. We had been purchasing other people's products up to that point. Mm -hmm. Difficult to integrate to, costly, et cetera. So he, not knowing much about it, learned it, created perhaps the most hyper-efficient 3D engine Mm -hmm out there, so we're running all of this stuff on the GPU, which became an important technology pillar for the Visar system, right. because all of the rendering is occurring on this HoloLens yeah, set in real time. Yeah. About that, you know, fast forward a few years, and augmented reality is starting to...
0: It's percolating up. There's vi- there's virtual reality and there's augmented reality, and they're interesting twins, there's sisters.
1: Going, right. There's going to be an AR headset come out from Microsoft. Yeah. And Steve wants to try it. So I say, great. I authorized the first headset purchase for right. this. And he gets one of the he's one of the earliest
0: yeah. in this. The, the Microsoft HoloLens. HoloLens right? One. Yeah.
1: And away we go. Yeah. And it's cool. Yeah. And we get FDA clearance for that. In the meantime, we'll come back to the story of Novarad. But Novarad's kind of perking along as a PAX and risk company in the in the radiology ecosystem. <laughs> and uh the then president of the company, Tim Law, who I had run the company for many years, felt that we really should stay focused on our technology of uh, picture archiving, right? Imaging. Right. And I had seen this, you've experienced it. I have. And you it's like, no, this is transformational. It we is. we need to put some investment in this. Yeah. And so as CEO I kind of overrode that decision. And we created a team to, uh, to push that forward. Yeah. So we'll rewind to the, to the history of Novarad. Yeah. <clears throat> so Novarad began as Magnetic Research Incorporated, MRI.
0: Uh, okay.
1: And we were building surface coils. Let's
0: see, I've heard of
1: MRI from before. Now, now it connects. And contrast media. Yeah, now it connects for me we then decided that we would take in some it was it was formed as an s corporation which was of course sure attached to my easy to do yeah, easy to do yeah uh we then decided well we'll seek money and uh and so met with a number of different companies in order to Fund this though, we needed to change it to a a C corporation because companies can't invest in it. That's right. So we changed the name to Digimad.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: Okay. So Digimad took in some money from uh, initially um, the Canopy Group, Ray Norda. Oh, yeah. I remember Ray and of course Ralph Yarrow. Ralph Yarrow, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So they agreed to put in $1.2 million, which we were very hungry for money at the time. This is
0: Digimed. This would have been
1: <coughs> late 90s, uh, early 2000s? Yeah, Mid-90s, early, okay, nin- mid, okay. early 90s, okay, around okay. in there.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: The challenge was that Ray, who... I loved Ray. He was a great guy. Yeah. I got to meet him several times. He was actually a friend of my uncle's. Uh, they were both engineers at University of Utah. Um, and frankly, one of my tech heroes. But they, at that time, were locked in this titanic struggle with Microsoft. With Microsoft, exactly. They weren't happy that Microsoft was basically you know, pushing them out of the market. Yeah. So they had acquired Unix, yeah, and they had their own DOS called DR DOS. Yep. When they sent the contract, so they gave us the first tranche of one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. They sent the contract over to be signed, and you know the attorneys had um, their attorneys had had really created this difficult document. Everything had to work exactly according to plan, or you know, we were, you know, pushed out. Yeah. Um, and what they wanted was to take this very cool product that we created on DOS and Apple and create it on DOS.
0: Of course they did.
1: And on Linux.
0: Of course they did.
1: And I looked at that and said, we'll spend the entire capital that we have yeah. reinventing this product in these two... Operating systems to say nothing of, you know, the preferred stock and all of the different ways that venture money typically ties up.
0: And time. And time. And time. Yeah.
1: So I went to the bank, borrowed $120,000, and gave them their money back. They weren't happy about it, but no. it wasn't the right thing to do. Okay. Digimed um ultimately failed. It took in a little bit of money from the Canon Group, if you remember Chris Cannon. I do. And his uh his Canon Industries yeah. effort. He went to Congress. Yeah. I think it was difficult for him to manage some of those investments that he had. They brought in these so called super smart people, their own Chief financial officer, we hired a president that came from Kodak and uh, attempted to launch. The problem is that those types of individuals are not built for the lack of structure that occurs in a small, cheap startup.
0: Yeah, tech startup, cheap startup. They don't
1: have all of the people to help them. the marketing people, the product people, the process people, the financial uh, people, et cetera. And they basically spent the money and didn't pay the taxes. And I was left as the CEO and majority uh, shareholder uh, knowing that the IRS would come jointly and severally after everybody um and so I agreed to, to pay off the debts if we could take the technology with us. So we formed a new company, so there would be no question of Be clean. Be clean. Yeah. And that became Nova
0: Novarad. Okay. <laughs> That's a story. Uh very interesting. And and not surprising. There a lot of not every company gets from a to T on a straight line. Entrepreneurship is typically not a straight line. It's up and down and sideways and it's three-dimensional and it's it's rarely easy, right, as you've experienced. And so you get to the formation of Novarad as a standalone, in essence, Phoenix-like company but its own entity. That's when? Uh, early 90s. Early, I can't remember. Okay, that's fine. And the focus of Novarad then versus Novarad today. Talk about that journey. Give me like a minute. What was Novarad then and what is it today?
1: So, Novarad began as a teleradiography company. Okay. Teleradiography was, in essence, taking images from a central location like a hospital yeah. and sending them somewhere else so you could read images remotely from a rural hospital or a doctor could read them at night. Yeah. But we still pretty much ran the department on film. Digital imaging began to evolve rather quickly, and I sat down with my guys and I said, look, if we're gonna stay as a teloradiography company. We'll be dead inside of five years because picture archiving the PAX technology will basically replace this. Yeah. I hired a um, a young man who uh, was different, you know, came in with the baggy pants and lots of attitude. And, uh, his name was Hal Tolley, a brilliant guy, but um, I think it challenged in some of his previous em- employment. And he wrote the first 32-bit Windows, Pack product okay in the world, and it was so good, you know. The company struggled, but I the product was so good, I couldn't kill it. So we kept feeding it. I kept feeding it out of my personal income. It, we stumbled along for years without capital. This is still DOS. No, we're now on Windows. You're now on Windows. We're okay. now on Windows. We're selling Pack systems. We're small. This is like 1995. Yeah. Um, But uh, we don't have the market awareness, you know. I remember one prominent doctor telling me, he said, Wendell, he said, your product is awesome. It's just incredible. He said, the problem is hospitals want to buy a product from someone they can sue. You're just not big enough. (laughs) And, And so... You know, it's 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 the old adage. You don't get fired for you know buying buying IBM back in the day. That's
0: exactly right. Yeah.
1: So we struggled, Uh, but we organically acquired customers and we bootstrapped and and the company stumbled along. I literally fed it for you know fifteen years. Yeah. And finally, I became very frustrated with it. I was building a clinic. I had a busy medical practice. I was teaching at the university, writing textbooks. I just, something had to get. Yeah. There were four people that were left in the company. KJX, who had been with us through magnetic research and DigiMed, the only employee that, that stuck with it. Mm-hmm. And he said, Wendell, he said, I said, why don't you quit, Kay, He said, I know you'll never give up. So, you know, I'm going to be there when it succeeds. Okay. Hired a guy from Net Schools, Tim Law, Doug Schrappel, another uh of that Novell net school, you know, ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul Shumway and and so we had just a small cadre of people. Yeah. And I said, Look, guys, I don't want to keep feeding this. I will transfer twenty percent of the stock to you. But I won't put any more money in Got it. It became their risk. They started putting money on their credit cards. And you know what? They did it.
0: Very interesting. So roughly, was seven years ago, eight years ago, if my memory is correct, this announcement comes out from Microsoft because Microsoft has become quite the player in the gaming space. Yes. Right? And separate from them you've got Lincoln who goes off and invents what becomes the company Oculus. Oculus gets acquired by Facebook for over a billion dollars. The first true heads-up display Microsoft says for gaming if nothing else and then as they dig into it because they're really they're still a business company. Yes they're in gaming, yes they're in entertainment but their biggest revenue stream is from the operating system from the software, from the data, all of that. And they're like, we need something that allows us to compete first in gaming, but then over time, potentially in a business. And they end up with HoloLens, right? And that's when Savetko is already part of your team. He's like, I think this might be interesting. And starts that journey towards what is now Visar, Let me see if I've got this correct, okay? So with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, there's different ways you can get clearance from them to have a product that's used in surgery or what have you. And in one case, it's called a 510K. 510K essentially means this is essentially comparable to what's already in the marketplace. Is that basically correct? Correct. Okay. And so there's already imaging out there. And what I experienced just a few days ago at your facilities down in River Bottoms in Provo was to put this bad boy on like this adjust it you're in the cadaver lab there's a cadaver there on the table you've got multiple doctors from around the world and you're demoing this technology and this thing comes down like this and all of a sudden I can see cutaways into the body itself. I can see the spine. I can see the ribs. I can see tissue. And then if I change my perspective, I can see, and I'm going to use the term needle. That may not be the right term, but I can see where needles have been inserted from a radiological standpoint. Literally, I'm like, oh my crap. This is... This has to be life changing for a doctor, for a surgeon. Is that true? I mean, it. I'm assuming for you, you're like, wow,
1: right? Yeah, I think that it, to answer your FDA question initially, we were the first to get a five ten k clearance using augmented reality. Yes, for preoperative guidance. Right, so I know. I did know that. This is basically we take the patient's. Images, mm-hmm. And we have alien images now in yeah. medicine. So we take these MRI or CT or PET scans and we take the images and project them inside the patient. Yep. So we were the first company to take the inside of patients and put them back on the inside virtually. Yeah. The, the genius really of the HoloLens headset is their sen- sensor technology. It's relatively easy to project the hologram. Yeah. But what Microsoft did was to create the the ability to map and to spatially localize. So with that, we we managed to get the FDA to clear it for pre-operative planning. Meaning, I walk up to you, I know where my tumor is, I know where to make the incision, I know where to start my tract. Yeah. Then we said, okay, How far can we push this? What's the accuracy? And we went for stereotactic surgical guidance clearance. Okay, So that is basically navigation where we are taking an object and precisely placing it inside the body. To help guide the surgeon. So for spinal navigation, the... The standard is you have to be sub 3 millimeters of accuracy for orthopedic and for spine. About there roughly. Just over the thickness of a dime. Yeah. Okay. We're currently sub 2 millimeters and in process or you know under consideration at the FDA for cranial stereotactic guidance. Right. And so so that's the that's the technical aspect of that the clearance Imaging is one side, pre-surgical planning is a, is a second tool and people use for that to understand these complex anatomic relationships, uh, Oftentimes, they will use 3D printing for a surgeon to, to understand, but 3D printing takes a lot of time. It can take 24 hours to yeah, print a spine. Model. Exactly. It's also not very flexible. No. You can't you can't adjust it. You can't change the transparency and move to coronal and axial slices and so forth. Yeah. So we were the first to get preoperative clearance. We managed to get a lot of IP wrapped around this. Every time we'd solve a problem, we'd file a patent on it. Of course. And um so today we have the first operatively cleared, immersive technology with Reality.
0: well interestingly enough for our audience out there it turns out that Steve Svetko and I were neighbors for three years and so when I found out that he was at a part of your team which I didn't know before and then he was there when I was there over the weekend we had a chance to visit and he walked me through the journey from his perspective and now if I understand correctly It can be used preoperatively. It also can be used in a classroom in a learning setting where multiple students or professionals, MDs, can actually all be looking at the same image or at their own image of the same body of what's happening radiologically and to see into the body to help them to learn what needs to happen in a surgery. And it occurs to me that If you can get a 510K clearance for use in a spinal setting, it, it should be able to extend just to out to almost anything. And one of the things that you mentioned about the challenge with 3D printing is the time it takes to 3D print. If you're talking about trauma and you need to go into surgery right now, you can't wait for something to be printed. Right, You need to get into surgery. And the sooner you can see what's in the body and to address it, the better off the patient's going to be,
1: correct? I think that the the promise of this, uh, and and we're realizing this promise, is its adaptability to lots of different organ systems. I like that. Cranial and spine are two typical ones that use guidance, but joints plastic surgery, ENT. I mean, once you cut into the body, it's just kind of a bloody field. You you don't really have this precise ability to see. And especially if the you've been in there before, it's scar tissue. So yeah. you're trying to find that lymph node, that tumor, that fracture, that... Um, yeah, so surgeons have... R- have required larger exposure fields, more dissection, more tissue trauma, which means more risk, more recovery time. Yeah. But if we can make that surgery smaller, more keyhole approaches, more targeted to the, to the area of interest, it's better patient care. The challenge really, though, is we have great guidance technology today. But it's slow, it takes 45 minutes to set up in an OR. It takes a team of people. You have to drag all of this equipment into the room. You drag a CT scanner in. You drag an infrared beam uh, system. You drag these monitors in. Oftentimes you drag robots in. That all costs
0: money. And takes time. And takes And adds time. risk because any time you enter you introduce something in the surgical suite, you add the risk of bringing in
1: organisms that you don't want. So all that equipment has to be cleaned Absolutely. and sterilized between Absolutely. each procedure. Absolutely. And it's not something that you're going to just pick up and take it over to the emergency room no. or to the ICU no, or to a field hospital right. or to a hospital, you know, a small hospital in Nebraska that can't afford a $2 million robot. Right. But they could afford a $3,500 headset. Exactly.
0: That plugs into a machine that may be millions of dollars. It's a network. Exactly. It's it, a network. But, it's, but it's a node on the network. That's right. the thing. It's a network. It's a node on the network.
1: So all of that pyramid of technology, you ask what Novarad is today, we've spent decades building imaging, processing storage, encryption, object store, uh, all of the different foundational pieces, HIPAA logging, segmentation, AI processes. To EHR the connectivity off. and all of that. Exactly. Connectivity yeah. to all of these different medical systems. Yeah. And at the top of that pyramid is this augmented reality guidance system. Which, by the way, when I I met with Microsoft two years ago with their engineers in Renton, and they're like, there's no way. You can't get that accurate with this headset. Right. It's not technically possible. It's about the software, though. But by using some very ingenious uh, multi-tracking systems from multiple angles and multiple points on the body using optical fiducials, and you saw this on the on I the did Dabbers, were able to get sub 2 millimeter accuracy
0: which is just insane look this has been fascinating i have this sense that there's a lot more coming out of Provo in the medical device field in the augmented reality surgical suite field i'm going to be very very interested to Kind of watch and see what happens. Congratulations, Dr. Gibby, to you and to your team for getting your first 510 clearance in the surgical suite. I think it's huge. And so with that, thank you for coming in today. So I'm David Felitas, Silk and Slopes Conversations. Thank you for joining us today. We'll catch you next time.